Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and your goodness, your grace to us, the truth that you revealed through Jesus. We, we pray that your spirit will be with us this morning, help our minds draw closer to you and understand more fully your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number five in the quarterly, the book of Matthew, and the title this week is The Seen and the Unseen War. The Seen and the Unseen War. Now, when you hear that title, The Seen and the Unseen War, what comes to mind when you, when you hear that? The text start popping into your mind? War. Where's the war waged? Yeah, what, are the, what are the weapons used on either side of this war? Truth and deception. Truth and deception is definitely a, a weapon. Do you think most of Christianity, when they think about the war, think first about the war in the mind? No. Or, or is there this idea of a battle of Armageddon, a battle uh, that, that often people think about, you know, planes and tanks and you know, things happening in the Middle East, a physical battle? How do we know that this battle that we're in, this battle that, that the Bible describes, this war that we're in, isn't primarily a physical one? How do we know that? Bible tells us. So where do we get that information? In Revelation twelve seven, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and the angels fought back. You know, the Greek word for war there is polemos, from where we get polemic. And a polemic is a verbal argument. It's an argument of ideas. It's an argument of, of, of belief systems. Satan is described as the father of lies. Lies, that's exactly right. Now, think about lies. If you use lies as a weapon, where do lies have power? Do lies have power on rocks? No. If you lie to a rock, is it going to do anything? Or trees, or plants, or birds, or dogs, or you think, think, think that through. Do lies have power? Where do, where do lies have their power? Only in beings who have the capacity to think on a higher level. That's the only place where, where lies have power on intelligent beings. And what do lies do when they take root in the mind of an intelligent being? What's, what's the consequence? What do the lies achieve? Influence. Yeah, they, they ultimately, they change the character. They change the heart. They incite fear and self-centeredness. They change the operating system, if you will. You like a computer metaphor? It's like a virus. What does a virus do to your computer when you get a virus in your computer? It alters its function. And lies alter our function. They alter how we think, how we see, how we process, how we react. If you're not sure about that, think of, the, think of this lie. Let's say your, your company where you're working is doing lab screening on everyone. You know, just free cholesterol screening for everybody. And so you get your, you get your blood drawn. And then two weeks later, they call you in, a lab tech sitting there, and this lab tech tells you a lie, that they actually ran your blood for HIV and you're HIV positive. <laughs> now, you're not. But if you believe the lie, let's say you walk out of there believing you are, does something inside you change? Do you have some different experience now? Do you walk out with as much peace? Do you have upregulation of your fear and anxiety circuits? How about your relationships? If you're married, do you want to go home and be intimate with your spouse if you now think you're HIV positive? Or do you even think, well, where did I get this? And you're thinking, okay, my spouse has probably cheated on me and brought this to me. I mean, think about all the devastation that can begin happening from this lie. Does it affect you if you believe it? 
And objectively, if you think about that whole cascade of events, what has in reality actually changed? Nothing, just an idea in your head. Just an idea in your head. Lies are powerful when they're believed. When they're believed, they can be very destructive. So, if you think about this war, again, we're asking the question, how do we know it's not physical? What is it that God wants to accomplish in this war from God's side? He's in in a war. What's he want to accomplish? What's the outcome, the end game for God look like? Love. He wants to accomplish love. Okay, I like that. At love and trust, right? Yeah. From whom? Who does he want to accomplish that? The universe. From all the intelligent beings, right? I get, absolutely. <clears throat> I was going to say, though, and you guys said you, you jumped to, to, the, to the end game, but that, that would also be sometimes people say he wants to destroy sin. Which is also, though, accomplishing love, isn't it? Because when you accomplish love, do you destroy sin? But when people think of destroying sin, do they usually think of destroying it by accomplishing love? That's not the typical way. How, how, how you know, when, when you, if you were to go out to evangelical Christianity and say, do you believe God wants to destroy sin? How about just your local church this weekend? And, and you say, well, how does God destroy sin? What, what kind of answers might you get? How does God destroy sin? He's going to burn it up. He's going to burn it up. He's going to use fire. He's gonna... now, now think that through with me. If we said what we said earlier is he wants to accomplish love. He wants to accomplish love. He wants us to love and trust him. Can he achieve love and trust by the use of might and power? I'm going to... I'm, I wanna, I wanna, I'm gonna, if you I love you. Just love me, please. If you don't, though, I will burn you. For, for as long as you deserve. Try that on your spouse. Does he get more love by, by threatening? Can you get love by threatening? It's, do you see the inherent infection in Christianity? Christianity is infected. Paul talks at the end of time. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power. There's no power. Why is there no power? Because we're infected with this construct that God's methods don't, don't actually work to achieve what he wants. So we have God, we, we, I think all would agree God does want to destroy sin. There's no question, he does. But then we take this methodology to achieve it that actually doesn't destroy it, it actually inflames it. People become more fearful, more distrusting. And thus they create theologies, and what are the theologies often designed to do? Functionally, look at the things you've been taught and ask, what are they functionally achieving for me? And you'll notice that many of the things taught in Christianity are working to do this either hide us from or protect us from God. Can you think of any that do that? That's, that's how they're taught? Hiding us from God or protecting us from God? As if God is our enemy. As if God is the problem. As if God is the source of pain and suffering. As if God found something wrong with us, he'd have to torture and kill us for it. You see the, the inherent bias that keeps hearts closed. And God can't get what he wants by might and power. So how does he get it? Zechariah 4, 6. Yeah, go ahead. He also can't get it by deception. Excellent. You know, the robe of Christ's righteousness placed over a sinner is not hiding the sinner. That is not deception. Have you ever heard it taught that way? Have you ever heard it preached that when you accept Jesus, he covers you with a robe of righteousness. So when the Father looks at you, he can't see your wickedness. He's the perfect record of Jesus in your place. And when that robe of righteousness covers you, it simultaneously puts the record of Jesus. His perfect life history goes into your record book. So when the record books are open and the judgment happens, he sees the perfect life of Jesus in your record book. Have you heard it put this way? 
This is practicing deception. Pulling the heavenly wool over the Father's eyes. It's interesting not what the founders of the Adventist Church taught it meant. The founders of the Adventist Church, Ella White and Christ's Object Lessons, I think it's page 311. It's either 311 or 411. I never quite get that one right. 311 or 411. She says, The robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. When we accept Christ, our heart is merged with his heart. Our desires are brought into unity with his desires. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of his righteousness. That is not a covering over. That's a regeneration within, a renewal of heart. And so when you think about this, this idea, God does want to destroy sin, but he can't destroy sin by the exercise of might and power. What is sin made out of? Because we've got this idea of fire, he'll burn it. If I get pieces of matter, wood, plastic, flesh, do I have sin? Is sin made out of matter? Can I burn sin by burning up matter? If we, if we vaporize the entire earth, are we, are we burning up sin? No. We can't do it. Sin at its root element is two. We already talked about one, lies. Satan is the father of lies. What is it that burns out lies? Truth. And the other root element is selfishness, which is the opposite of love. And, and it's burned out by love, and the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth and love. Unless at Pentecost they saw tongues of fire, two tongues of fire. The fires of truth, the fires of love, and where do they have their impact? In the minds of people. That's why it says Zechariah 4, 6, I mentioned earlier, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. The Spirit of truth, the Spirit of love. Because the only way you can be transformed, God has power. He can, he has the ability to use divine energy to overwrite your sinful operating system heart and put in a sinless heart in you. He has the power to do that. But if he does it in that way, guess, guess what else happens simultaneously? Your individuality is gone. You're wiped out. You don't exist anymore. A new entity, a new identity exists there. Not you. You're not, you're not you anymore. The only way for you to be cleansed is for you to voluntarily participate, to trust, to choose, to open, to invite, to cooperate with. So God in this war cannot achieve his ends by might and power. This is how we know it's not a physical war. The use of might and power only incites more fear. God's weapons, truth, you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Remember 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. And think of all the worldly weapons. Lies, deception, coercion, intimidation, um, sanctions. No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast, the mark of the beastly systems. You know, beasts represent earthly governments. In Bible times, you know all those. But how about today? What's, what's the symbol of America? It's an eagle. What's the symbol of Great Britain? A lion. What's the symbol of Russia? A bear. We're still doing it today. Beastly systems. And how do they work? They tear and they destroy if you don't do it. And how does America lead the world? Economic sanctions. You can either buy or sell, say you do what we say. God cannot win his war this way. Memory texts for this week, it says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. If you jump to Sunday's lesson, in the first paragraph, it says, 
Scripture is the Word of God, and in in it, the plan of salvation is made clear, yet some texts can be difficult to understand. And they're referring to this one. And then jump to Monday's first three paragraphs. It says, Bible students through the ages have struggled with Matthew eleven twelve, the one I just read. Because the words that describe the kingdom and the people here can be used in either the positive or negative sense. The Greek verb, besmati, can be either forcefully advancing or suffering violence. The Greek word, biastis, can mean forceful or eager men, or violent men. So, does the verse mean that the meek and mild kingdom of heaven is suffering violence, that violent people are attacking it, or is the kingdom of heaven forcefully advancing in a positive sense, and the forceful men are seizing it, the forceful men seizing it are actually followers of Christ? Is it possible for the followers of Christ to be this aggressive, even forceful, in their pursuit of the kingdom? Now, they've said that for years this has been a difficult passage to understand. That Christians have have struggled. Is it this way or is it this way? What do you all think? Is it difficult to understand? Yes, Wendell. Well, coercive force is not part of God's kingdom, but energy is. Force is the part of energetic Christianity is a force. Okay. And there is effort. There is um, personal initiative and force and energy necessary for the kingdom. Absolutely. Other thoughts? Do you see the tension the lesson is trying to set up? Then they, they say that Christians have struggled. How, which way does it go? It's only a struggle if you're operating under imposed law. It's, never, it's not a struggle at all. It's so crystal clear as soon as you move your mind to design law. See, if God's government functions no different than human gov- governments, then this text is difficult to understand. Which is it? Using might and force to advance, to push your way, to, to, to you know, coerce your agenda, to, uh, forcefully pushing against others, or... Is it being forcefully pushed against and attacked by others? It's, it seems like it's one or the other. This is level one through four thinking. Either or. But when we turn to design law of love, then it becomes easy to understand. God's government is the government of truth, love, and freedom. At war with Satan's government of coercion, deceit, and selfishness. So think this through with me. God's government... Is it being violently attacked by Satan? Yes. Yes. But the power of love and truth forcedly advance how? As it is being violently attacked. Did you hear me on that? If you want an example, nothing demonstrates this reality more potently than the cross. At the cross, Jesus was wielding the weapons of truth, love, and freedom. Satan was wielding the weapons of lies, coercion, and selfishness. And Satan violently attacked Jesus, did he not? At the cross? But whose kingdom advanced forcefully? Christ's kingdom advanced forcefully. With what force? The force of love. The force of truth. It was exposed by being attacked by coercion and responding in love. This is how it advanced. So, so it's, it's, it's pretty clear to see to me in this world 
How about Stephen was being stoned? Who was violently attacking? Satan's kingdom was violently attacking. Whose kingdom, though, was advancing at that point? Was Satan's kingdom advancing or was God's kingdom advancing? God's kingdom was advancing at that point. Christians martyred in the arena of Rome. Who's violently attacking? Who's forcefully advancing? Do you see? When you use the weapons of God, the kingdom of love and truth forcefully advances as it's being violently attacked. In this world, love and truth will always be attacked by the selfish and the deceitful. Even in the worldly systems, you can see this happen. How did the British Empire get out of India? They forcefully attacked Gandhi and his passive followers, remember? But whose kingdom advanced there? Yeah, you can even see it there. So, Satan's kingdom seeks to advance by the use of coercive power to intimidate and to eliminate opposition. But how does God's kingdom go forward forcefully? By love, forgiveness, truth, grace, patience. And if you think this through, where is God's kingdom exercising its power? Where? Where is the action point? Where is the power in the hearts and minds? That's right. That's the power. Yes. On this, these verses, as well as several others, you know, that read them in the clear word, I think the clear word goes along with the remedy. Cool. Thank you. So, notice what God's kingdom is doing, and we'll read this out of the Good News, Good News Translation. This is 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17 through 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Anyone who is joined to Christ is a new being. Is a new being. You notice it doesn't say anyone who is joined to Christ is declared to be a new being, which is the, is the imperial mode. The imperial mode, you're not actually new. You're just declared to be new. No. Anyone who is joined to Christ is a new being. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is done by God through who through Christ changed us from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message is that God was making the whole human race his friends through Christ. God did not keep an account of their sins. That has to be blasphemy, doesn't it? Is this blasphemy? Did not keep an account of, I mean, aren't we taught that God has his records and he does keep an account and there's a judgment. He's going to open them up. He's going to go through the list of all the wrongs you've done and there's going to be a committee meeting in heaven and we're going to have this meeting to see how long each person has to, has to burn and then God is willing to inflict that upon everybody to make sure everybody has their just punishments because he's kept the wrong of everything. Isn't that what we're taught? That's imperial law. That's human law. That's not God's law. Love keeps no record of wrong, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Here it says in 2 Corinthians God did not keep an account of their sins, and he has given us the message which tells us how he makes them his friends. The power of God taking people who distrust him, who, who, who is, are at enmity, at war with him, and he changes them into his friends. This is the power of God. The power to transform lives, the power to heal hearts, the power to renew and regenerate beings back into harmony with his character of love. It's real. It happens in hearts and minds here and now. This is what God is fighting for. He's fighting for his friends, for his children, for their healing. This type of war is fought on design law, on how life is constructed to operate. Yes? So, 
where it says in Matthew 12 that every word that we speak will give an account of, it's not because God has it in a book. It's because all of those actions and thoughts have shaped my character, and I, if I don't give them up, I am now accountable for the condition of my character. Yes, and I would even go farther and say that... Every- in, my, in my genes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say your genes. I would say in your... Because genes are part of what I consider the hardware and the biology. Tell me the biology part. Okay. <laughs> I get that confused. Okay. I, I would say it's in your character, your operating system, your, your um, software, if you will. Okay. Okay? Yeah. That's where it's at, in the heart. There because I haven't asked Jesus to transform me. Yes. Exactly. Our brain software does change our brain hardware. That's right. Our, our hardware changes structurally, but we don't get new hardware here on Earth. We don't get new hardware until this mortal puts on immortality and this corruption puts on incorruption, but we can have new hearts and right spirits now. We can have new motives. We can come, and, the, and what does it really look like functionally? We love others more than self. These are they, Revelation twelve eleven, who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. We've come to the point that we love God and others so much that we're not driven primarily by survival mechanisms and protecting self. That if it comes down to it, we would give our lives so that others might live. Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is. Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for our brothers. Yes. We're going to pick up on your thought here in just a minute in Tuesday's lesson. Okay. Um, just real quick, I, I wanted a little bit of clarification because I was, I was trying to mull it through my, in my brain. Um, so often in the Bible, why why is that righteousness when it, when it's being given to the new believer or the, the the person with a new heart? Why is it referred to as being clothed or being covered with, with this idea? Like Adam and Eve, they found out that they when they had sinned, they they were naked. They, they were no longer covered. And, and and I guess is that the language? You know, the confusion. So was- so, so where do you get the language of covering? Where do you get that? Give me an example from scripture. I mean, like, sewing, I guess, the fig leaves together and, and putting that on Adam and Eve, I guess. Is that- yeah, that was them trying to cover up themselves. Why were they feeling exposed? Where is that coming from, that exposure? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid, because they were naked. Now, did someone take clothes away from them? Had they been clothed and suddenly those clothes were ripped off? What, what were they clothed with? What, where, where, does, where was that light coming from? Where's the origi- originating source of that light? And, and so what, why, why did they not have it anymore? What caused that light to not be emanating from them anymore? What, what caused the separation? Sin. Sin, okay. Well, what is that sin? They believed the lies. They believe, the lies believed, break the circle of love and trust in their hearts and minds. They no longer trusted God, thus they shut their hearts off to that communal connection with God. Okay? That's what happened. And thus, because they were disconnected from God in fear, distrusted him, think he's out to get Remember, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And, and, and God says, Adam, who told you you are naked? Think this conversation through. On this planet, what are the options here? Where'd you hear this from? What's the implication? There's, there's, how many people are in this conversation right now between Adam and God? Two people. I ran and hid because I was afraid, because I was naked, Adam says to God. Who told you you were naked? Implica- implication what? You didn't hear me say that. I didn't point out your defects. I'm not critical. I'm not saying, where's that coming from, Adam? Where did it come from? Adam himself. 
Adam had deviated from God's design for life, and internal to Adam, a change had occurred. He had lost his peace. He had lost his joy. He would now uh, had fear and self-centeredness in his heart. He was projecting out onto God his own judgmentalism. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. Punish her. Don't punish me. Where's that coming from? He sees God as the role punisher now. It's all coming from his own distortion in his mind. He's got a viral infection in his head. He believes a lie. It's severing him and disconnecting him. So this idea of covering. Go back to Zechariah chapter 3. The high priest stands there, the accuser, the brethren, accusing. And notice what happens. Take off his filthy garments, put on him white robes, and then you read the context. See, I have taken away your sin. It's symbolic of taking away. Now where, 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 can we, where is sin occurring? See, under the imperial law model, and I get this, when we were at the GC, there was an, <laughs> we were having a great time at the GC. We were passing out tens of thousands of stuff. Remember the guys there and all the positive feedback? We're getting? But there's one individual walking around, handing out these little cards saying, Jennings teaches heresy. Learn the truth about Jennings. So we had several people come up. Yeah, I got this card. I had to come see what you're, can I get your stuff? I, I don't know. So he was helping, he was helping promote us really. But uh, I went and talked to this guy. And the first question he asked me, first question, do you believe that when we confess our sins, they're erased out of the record books in heaven? So that in the judgment, no one will know what we've done. And I said, God is not in the business of changing history. God wants to erase sinfulness out of the hearts and minds and characters of his people. Amen. That's what he wants to do, but he doesn't want to change history. And he said, see, I, know, I knew you didn't believe the Bible. <laughs> That's what he said. This idea that the problem with sin is something legal recorded in books that we must cover and erase is part of the imperial law construct. And... The design law is sin doesn't happen in books. It happens in the hearts, minds, and characters of people. And God wants to purge the hearts of his people from sinfulness and restore. I'll write my law. Where is he going to write his law according to the new covenant? In our hearts and minds. Put his protocols, his design parameters back into our being so we live in harmony with him again. That's the goal. It's healing and transformation. That's what God's fighting for. But billions of Christians are deceived in thinking God uses coercive tactics to achieve his goal. That he's re, uh, returning, to, to, we're returning to dark ages thinking that we can actually put somebody on a stake of wood, light them on fire and torch them in order to save their souls. This is what they did in the dark ages. So the priest can be there, give last rites, send their soul to heaven. We're saving, we're saving souls this way. This is how the Taliban and ISIS work. They use coercion to promote conversion. How do you like that way? How about Christians in Rwanda? Over a million killed in four months. Why? What method were they using? We're killing people who are different than us. How about Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland? For how many decades were they at war over their belief systems being different? How about so-called Christians in America who blow up abortion clinics? Are they doing anything functionally different than, than Taliban and ISIS? They're not. And so Christians are looking for a God, and you, and you can hear it. Or Jesus comes back. He's coming with a rod of iron to punish the nations. Hear it over in sermons in this community. Jesus is going to rain fire down from heaven to punish the wicked for their sin. Prior to Damascus Road, 
I think it's very instructive to look at Saul of Tarsus, and who became Paul. And prior to Damascus Road, he was on a mission for God. He was seeking converts. He was seeking, he was seeking to deliver people from what he saw as, as the deceptions of a, of a false system. And what method was he using prior to Damascus Road? Coercion. Absolute coercion to, to achieve what he thought was God's will. But after Damascus Road, notice when all these problems originated in the church, what method is he using? Truth, love, and freedom. We don't coerce. Every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. You'll see this in our society today. Both liberals, I, I'm not going to go into the politics. Just watch, watch what's happening in the political landscape and the arguments going back and forth. There are people on the conservative side and people on the liberal side, both willing to use coercive pressures to coerce consciences. Let's pass laws to require people to behave in certain ways against their conscience. You'll see both sides doing it. The word forcibly advancing is is very like a co- coercive word, so it should be like gloriously advancing instead of forcibly. So Tuesday's lesson, it's asked us to read several Bible passages and look at the reality of the great controversy. So um, we're, let's look at Matthew 12, 25-37. And this is... Uh, Following up, this will be the text, actually, that Rachel referred to a minute ago when we get to it. I'm going to read it to you, though, from the remedy today. You can follow along in your version. This is from the remedy. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowd's growing confidence in Jesus and sought to undermine him, saying, This is evil sorcery. It is by the power from Beelzebub, lord of devils and flies, that he drives out demons. Jesus knew their selfish motive and said to them, Every kingdom that wars against itself destroys itself, and every town or home that fights against itself will collapse. If Satan drives out Satan, then he wars against himself. How can his kingdom survive? And if I free minds from the domination of demons by the power of Beelzebub, then by whose power do your people drive out demons? (laughs) Your own practices reveal that you know better than to accuse me of using evil powers. No, we all know it is not by Satan's power that I drive off demons. It is by the power of God's spirit, which is evidence that God's kingdom of love has arrived. Or think of it this way. How can a person enter a house of a strong man and carry away his possessions unless he first neutralizes the strong man? Only then can he take away uh, take what's his. In this metaphor, the strong man is the stronghold of lies. Remember, Second Corinthians said, the stronghold of lies that people believe. You can't free them until you first go in and neutralize the lies with the truth. That's what this is about. Then you can free the minds and set people free. Whoever is not united with me, working on my team to unite humanity together in love, is against me, causing division and disunity. So let me tell you plainly, every sin, every deviation from God's design can be healed except the rejection of the Spirit, for the Spirit administers the remedy which renews the heart in love. Anyone who speaks against the Son can still be healed, but speaking against the Spirit cannot be healed either now or in the future, for it is the Spirit that works in the heart to administer the remedy, and the Spirit works only in a willing heart. Make a tree good, and, it's, and it will bring forth good fruit. Make a tree bad, and it will bring forth bad fruit, for a tree is recognized by its fruits. You slither and plot like a pit of vipers. Do you really think that you, who are evil in heart, can say anything good? For the true character of one's heart is revealed by what a person says and does. Well, the good person speaks and does good out of the wellspring of good stored within them. And the evil person speaks and does evil out of the wellspring of evil stored within them. So speaking against the Holy Spirit reveals that one's heart is closed to the working of the Spirit. 
I tell you plainly, every word spoken will be accounted for. An accurate symptom will be tied directly to the correct diagnosis of each person's heart. The words you speak reveal the true condition of your heart, either healed or terminal. Thoughts about that? Do you think I missed the meaning here? Or do you think that is the meaning? That in the judgment, every word is accounted for as a direct revelation of the condition of the heart of the person who speaks and acts. That's under design law. Under imposed law, though, God's got a recording angel, and you better watch out what you say, because you say the bad word. Even if your hammer hits the thumb and it slips out under duress, if you say the bad word and you don't ask forgiveness, then God will burn you appropriate seconds in the fire to make you pay for that bad word. As you read the text that we just read, what kind of war is being described here? Notice this is a war for hearts and minds. It's a war for character. It's a war for the inner motives of the heart. It is a war over truth versus lies, love versus selfishness, freedom versus coercion. This is what this war is over. It asks us to read Isaiah 27.1. On, on that day, the Lord will use his powerful and deadly sword to punish Leviathan, that wriggling, twisting dragon, and to kill the monster that lives in the sea. What does this mean? Dark speech. Yeah, dark speech. We're going to unpack it. First off, who's the Leviathan? The great serpent. The dragon. The Satan lives in the sea. What do you think the sea refers to? Where does he live? He lives in the hearts and minds of the sea of people. That's where he lives. He lives in our hearts and minds. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the great sword. Well, let's, let's add a text to that before we unpack what the sword is. This is Isaiah 26. It's a, a chapter before verses 21 and 22. And it says, see, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling place to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword. I've actually remember not too long ago when we were establishing our ministry, there was a sermon preached on this text about God's punishing sword. And it was preached very much through imperialism that God is all-powerful and God keeps a record and God, all the wicked you have done, he will come one day and he will use his power and inflict pain and suffering and ultimate death upon you. That's how it was preached in one of our churches here locally. And one of our class members emailed me very distressed and upset and asked me about that. What does this mean? How do we understand this? It sounds so plain that he's comes and he's going to punish the people. What does this mean? Design law or imposed law? Well, here, here, put this text with it. Revelation 19, 19 through 21. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the, ho- on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. Interesting. The sword that came out of the mouth of the rider. Who's the rider, first off? Christ. Christ is the rider. Wendell, you had a comment. Well, it goes back to Revelation 1, 16, where Christ is described 
standing and then his appearance and whatnot, and a sword comes out of his mouth. Okay, and the sword out of his mouth in Revelation 1. But now we have what he's using the sword over here for, and the sword over here is to slay all these people, to destroy them. The sword out of his mouth. Do you see Jesus actually coming back with a piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? (laughs) Do we see that? Or is this a metaphor, symbol? You see, people level one through four thinking, moral development, have a hard time with, with abstraction. They're very concrete in their thinking. They don't interpret metaphor or symbolism or parable well. And the problem with that is, you see, metaphor, and I'll say this again, it's an idea I want you to get, get your mind really around. Metaphor is only metaphor if it actually is connected directly to some cosmic reality. If it is not connected to some reality, then it's no longer metaphor, it's fantasy. You get that? The metaphors and symbols and parables are tools to teach us a reality. If there is no reality, it becomes fantasy. Everybody with me on that? Much of Christianity is fantasy because it's taught disconnected from reality. And this idea that God comes back and uses might and power to inflict pain and suffering and torture, that's fantasy. That is not reality. So how do we understand? First off, before we even bring another Bible text in, what is it that comes out of the mouth? Words. Not, no, no, you, you've gone a step farther yet. What is it that comes out of the mouth? Words. Words come out of the mouth. Now, in this case, though, you were right. In this case, the writer is who? Christ. Christ. So what kind of words are always the words that come out of Christ's mouth? He said, I am the way, the truth, and life. So the words of Christ are always truth, but anybody else, it's not always truth. The serpent actually has other words that come out of his mouth, and his followers have other words of lives that come out. But in Christ's case, and do we have a Bible text that will support us in this? Hebrews 4.12, what's it say? The word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit. Think that. Dividing of soul and spirit. Think this, guys. Dividing of soul and spirit. Is this metaphor? Or is he actually describing a process of what truth does? I mean, this, is, this is quite profound. It's quite insightful. This is, he's describing what's going to happen when the rider comes with the sword in, out of his mouth to destroy. He's describing what Isaiah is describing about this sword that is going to destroy and punish. The dividing of So in Bible, Bible language, Greek, what is the Greek word for soul? Psyche. From where we get psychiatry and psychology. It's your individuality. It's your identity. Analogous to the computer software. Spirit is panuma. Breath of life, energy, analogous to, analogous to the computer's electrical energy source, and body would be soma, from which would be the hardware. And so what it's saying is the truth will separate the software from its energy source. They'll die. They're not going to live. This is, what, this is what Isaiah says. Well, is there another text? Second, Second Thessalonians 2.10. The wicked are destroyed. Here's a quote from Scripture. Because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. Why are they destroyed? Because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. You see, what happens for individuals who harden their individuality, their sense of self, into lies and falsehood when they come face to face with unveiled infinite truth? What's that experience like? Can't stand it. They can't stand it. It causes that. Is it an infliction? Where's the suffering coming from? 
If you want some, some examples from scripture from this, Moses spends 40 days in God's presence and he comes down off the mountain. What's Moses' face doing? Glowing, radiating. Yeah, does he have third degree burns? This is whiskers flamed off his face. No, this is not combustion. This is something else. When the people see Moses, though, what do they do? What do they experience when they see him? Fear. Discomfort. Discomfort. Agony. Why? What's happening? This is not harmful to Moses. Why are they, why are they suffering? This is a great el- illustration. Because they are still operating in lies, in guilt. Their hearts have not been reborn and renewed. Thus, heavenly truth exposes the sickness in them and it causes them to suffer. They don't want to see it. This is what Christ meant. Those who live in darkness don't want to come into the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. Nadab and Abihu walk into unauthorized fire and it says fire came out from the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Next verse, the cousins go in and carry them out in their tunics. See, this wasn't a flamethrower. This wasn't combustion. This was an unveiled truth. God just revealed reality to them. And you understand when Christ comes back, he is going to come back in his unveiled glory. And the universe is going to be set right. We will all live in his presence again. Those who have solidified themselves in lies, the truth burns through those lies. And it separates their individuality from their life energy and they die. Romans 16.20 it says, uh, and God, our source of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. What do you think this means? That God will crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. God will crush Satan under your feet. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. That we choose to serve him you know, in truth means that we overcome Satan. He's separated. In other words, it's our conversion that demonstrates victory over Satan. And feet would be symbolic of our walk in life, our journey in life, the steps we take in living our lives, right? So it's it's confirming what you're saying. And so by our life actions, if we're living in harmony with God's will, the steps in our journey, every step is a demonstration of a denial of Satan and living for Christ. It crushes his methods. It crushes him under our feet. Yeah, I like that. And then it asks us to read Genesis three fourteen through 19. I think we should unpack this. I'm going to read it to you out of NIV. It says, God, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. This is the same individual that I talked about a minute ago. He and others who promote that God must punish view. I can't tell you how many times I've been hit with this text right here. See, as soon as they sin, God punished them. It's proof. God punishes sin. That's imperial law. When you view these texts through the imposed law model, you hear God acting to punish. But if you view it through design law model, you view something entirely different. It's a description 
It's a description and intervention, perhaps, therapeutically. Let's see if we can figure that out. First off, what about curse the serpent? Is is the serpent, not Satan now, we're actually talking the actual reptile, is the reptile a sentient being capable of moral decision-making? It is not. It can't determine right and wrong. It can't rebel. It can't sin. So this cannot be punishment for sin because the serpent couldn't sin to start with. So it's not punishment for sin. Well, then what is it? If he's not punishing sin, what is it? What is God doing here? It's not discipline. You can't discipline a snake and have it become a, a nice disciple. What is it? Who's, who, who, is, who would benefit from this action? Is God working to save and to heal? So there's some way, if you're going down that model, you have to be thinking, okay, this was for man's benefit in some way. How? How does this benefit man? Yes. This is a similar way to where he cursed the fig tree when he's going to Jerusalem because the fig tree represented a unfruitful people of God. So, yes, I like where you, I think exactly the same type of thing. And what was the curse of the fig tree for? Was it punishment? Was he punishing the fig tree? The fig tree made a bad moral sin. It sinned against God, and so it must be punished for its sin. Did the tree sin? No. No, it didn't. So what's the, what's, these are object lessons. Object lessons. These are metaphors. These are uh, an acted out lesson to teach us something. Yes. How do you think Adam and Eve would look at every serpent they saw now thinking of, wow, we used to see them flying around beautiful, glorious, and now they're all crawling on the ground. What would that do to their heart for what happened to that animal from... Yeah, and and it happened, and and that animal, though, was cursed not because of Adam and Eve's sin necessarily, but because it, why? Why was it cursed? The function of who took control of it. There you go. So there's a lesson here. Satan takes control of things, it debases them. Anything aligned with Satan's way of doing things is damaged and debased by it. It's not exalted. Remember in the tree? Oh, you, you, look, I can talk because of this. I've been exalted because I've disobeyed, because I've gone in this direction. I've been exalted. I've been elevated. I can speak now. The lesson is just the opposite. No, you've aligned with the enemy and you don't get exalted, you get debased. And so it's an object lesson. It's an object lesson for humanity today still. Whenever you see a snake, hey, you are not exalted when you identify and align yourself with the enemy. You will be debased by that practice. I think it's a simple object lesson here. It's not punishment for sin. All right, what about the next one? Your desire, we'll we'll come to the... Yeah, we'll we'll do the desire first and and then the birth and then the pain and child labor. So... Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The immature, level one through four, thinking, well, see, she disobeyed. She was the one deceived. God uses the power, punish, subordinates her, gives Adam authority. Boom, it's God's design. You have to do it that way. No, this was a description. This is simply a description of what happens in the hearts of people when selfishness replaces love. And what happens in the heart? The strong dominate the weak, and the weak long to be protected by the strong. This is what's going to happen. Women are going to seek protection from stronger male figures in a world, and men are going to seek to dominate those who are weak and put, put power over them. This is how relationships are going to turn out because now selfishness is ruling in the heart, not love. What about the increase in pain and childbearing? Is God using power to punish sin? Okay, some, some translations don't use, I will increase your pain. They use the word, I will increase your sorrow. Because the Hebrew can actually be, it's an emotional pain, not a physical pain. It'll increase your sorrow in childbirth. Does that 
give you any insight as to what's happening here. Because it actually says, I will. God is saying, where the other was a description, here it's, I will greatly increase your sorrow in childbirth. Is God doing something here? Is this punishment for sin? How did God design the universe to run? On what? On love, right? When running in perfect accord, as he designed, is there any pain and sorrow? Is there? There is not. But now, this world is running unaffected with sin. What happens in this world today when love tries to express itself on earth? What happens to love when it tries to express itself on earth today? Is there... Is it met with rejoicing or is it met often with opposition and pain and suffering? Is there sorrow involved today when you live a life of love? Will there be sorrow involved? Yes. If the Lord had not multiplied Eve's conception, um, there wouldn't have been able to, up until the eradication of smallpox in the 18th century, people were always afraid that there would not be enough people to keep the land cleared and to provide civilization. And that, that, that is a way downstream look at things though prior to the flood if you read Ellen White's comment she says there was not a report of an infant dying before the flood mm. that vitality was so strong mm. this, is, this allowed for amalgamations to occur that were not put on the ark because vitality so close to the tree of life they didn't have these vulnerabilities and these genetic de- defects and so forth they lived 900 years mm-hmm. so downstream we have the problems you cited about infant mortality upstream prior to the, the, the the flood, though, I don't think they had infant mortality. Well, and if you don't don't have people dying, you don't need that same rate of conception either. But it doesn't say I'll increase your rate of conception. It does. It says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. Okay, that's a, that's, um, that is a King James translation? Uh-huh. And the other translations say, I'll greatly increase thy sorrow in conception. Okay. In conception. Mm-hmm. Or in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking this is a, is a therapeutic object lesson down through the, the course of time to teach us. Now, what, what object lesson could powerfully represent the struggle of love to overcome sin and bring forth new life in Christ? You see, the conception is supposed to be, as God designed, the expression of love as the two self-sacrificially give each other in the intimacy of marriage to bring forth new life. But, and when you bring forth new life, you give birth. Now, Christ is, God is working through Christ to do what? To conceive a new heart and right spirit in his people. We must be reborn into a new way of living. There is no way to get that experience without dying to self, without a painful self-sacrifice, if you will. First off, for God himself, as you see in the life of Jesus in Gethsemane Gethsemane and the cross. So, could the sorrow, struggle, and pain of labor be a therapeutic intervention to remind us all that because of sin, love will win, but only through trial, pain, and through sorrow. Jesus was called the man of sorrows. Why was he called the man of sorrows? In our memory text, we explore how God's kingdom advances as it's attacked. Could this be revealed in the sorrow of labor? New life comes forth, but only through pain in a world of sin. I'm just thinking it's a therapeutic object lesson. This is not a punishment. This is teaching. And and I think anybody who's gone through labor and, and then had the joy of that new life understands it was worth the pain to bring forth the child. And so Jesus, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
It was worth the pain for the delivery. What about curses the ground because of you? What about that one? Is that a punishment? I think that one's clearly a description. Level one through four, though, will say God's using his power to make it so. But level five through seven thinkers understand what the rest of the Bible says, that an enemy has done this, that all nature groans under the weight of sin. And so we understand that now that thorns and thistles, and if you add Ellen White to it, she says that there was not one noxious plant in the garden that God created, that all noxious plants, all thorns and thistles, and, and thistles are from Satan's amalgamations of God's creation, his mutations, and so, to, so forth and so to speak. Thoughts, questions about any of this? I want to jump into Wednesday's lesson. There was another text. i just leave it in the notes because we only have about five minutes left. It says, uh, Wednesday, it, the title is, When the Battle Gets Nasty. When the Battle Gets Nasty. Why do you think the battle gets nasty? And it uses the example of John the Baptist in the lesson. John the Baptist died at the hands of Herod, but why did he die? Why did John the Baptist die that way? What was the reason? Who, who did he die t- to help save face and save power? Queens. Queen. And Herod too, though. He'd, he'd given this oath publicly, and Herod didn't want to go back on his public oath. So the queen manipulated it, but then Herod's power was under question because he made this oath, up to half of my kingdom I will give to you, under oath in front of all these people. So Herod's now power and pride and so forth is on the line. And so he dies to protect, so to speak, the institution of Herod's power. And I just want to draw a a contrast between institutions and... Do you understand that institutions are not saved? People are saved. Get your mind... the, The plan of salvation does not save institutions. It saves people. But many institutions miss this and they get into institutional protection. So 2,000 years ago... The high priest said, you don't realize it's better for one man to die than the people, uh, for the people than the whole nation to perish. We must save our nation by sacrificing Christ. Uh, Herod needed to sacrifice John to save his rulership, his, in his mind anyway, his authority, his power. And throughout church history, every denominational institutionalized church has sacrificed souls to protect their systems. Organized, organizational cover-up of child molestation has happened in every institution. Every institution has done it. Why do they do it? And at what cost? Cost of more innocence. Consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is the person in the story of the Good Samaritan that is recognized as being right with God? Isn't it the Good Samaritan? Okay. But if you remember, there was already a Levite and a priest that went by. Now, it's not the Levite and the priest who's recognized. They had right doctrinal definitions. They were members of the right institution. They had right religious rituals. They had right worship programs. They went to church on the right day. They ate the right foods. But they weren't right. They were not right with God. Now, as far as we know, the Samaritan never sacrificed a temple, never kept the Sabbath, never ate a kosher diet. Yet, he is right with God. Why was he right with God? Because he had love in his heart. And this is the problem with the imperial system. The imperial institutional system is all about conforming to a syst- systematic s- rules, a, a creed, if you will, and it has no power to change the heart. As we started earlier, you can't change the heart with 
with, with threats and punishments. And that's how systems of the world work. Do this or else. God wins the heart with truth and love. And this is the power to transform. The Samaritan gave us time, energy, resources to help others. And this is God's goal. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you keep the Sabbath. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you eat a vegetarian diet, if you don't wear jewelry, if you're baptized by immersion. No, by if you love one another. If you love one another. This is the key. We're only true followers of Christ if we have hearts that love. Nothing else will suffice. No ritual, no doctrinal definition, no legal adjustment, no organizational membership. Love is the lifeblood of the universe and only those who have love in the heart are right with God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kingdom of love and we ask for the outpouring of your spirit of truth and love. Truth to dispel the misunderstandings and the lies and distortions that, that infect our thinking process and obstruct our unity with you and obstruct your love. And then the, the love that you have already poured out in Jesus Christ, poured into our hearts, as it says in Romans 5, 5, renew us to be like you that we might have love for you and love for each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.